Looks like everybody ran to the back of the church <laughs> from here. Praise the Lord. It's, um, I just want to thank you first uh, for allowing me the opportunity to share God's word with you today. My name is John Cornaccio. Jason is my firstborn. Rachel, Dr. Rachel Cornaccio is my daughter-in-law. And uh, I don't know if my little granddaughter, is she still here? No? She told me not to embarrass her, but Hannah's my granddaughter and Elijah's my grandson. Anyway, I feel quite humble this morning to share God's word. It's always a blessing to share God's word with God's people. People who think along the same lines, especially in these days. I want to ask you a question today. Are you still in love with Jesus? Do you still have that quality resonating within you when the Holy Spirit entered your heart and gave you the enabling grace to believe God for greater things in these last days? And I'm not a name it and claim it preacher. I'm not a prosperity preacher, so you can kind of count on that this morning. But this morning I want to talk to you about the Bible, really the Bible, the Word of God today. There's so much vying for our attention today. Even before coming to church today, my computer crashed probably 10 times between yesterday and today. I had trouble getting the PowerPoint out, which I finally did get out. But today we live in a culture that we are intoxicated by things such as advertisement and entertainment and technology. And all of this has a negative effect, especially on the church, we as Christians, because we come up against these things and we begin to process these things. And if we're not careful, they begin to displace God in our life and they begin to take on another flavor. And before you know it, we begin to drift away from God. Well, what is it that keeps us in the right place with God? Well, I, for one, can say that the Spirit of God keeps us where we need to be, and also that the Word of God keeps us where we need to be. If you saw your handouts, you would have seen the title, The Bible and the Believer. The Bible and the Believer. And we're going to look at the text in just a moment. But before we do, I just want to share one other thought with you this morning before we turn to the text in 2 Timothy. And that is, there's something that causes me to enjoy God more than anything else. And that's reading his word, as I just said. When I read God's word, I find hope. I find stability. I find the truth about myself and about God. And I am able to turn away from the things that God has told me to turn away from. I am able to turn away from the things that have destroyed me. I am now a saved man for about 27, 28 years. And I can tell you that the changes that have been wrought in me have been done primarily through me understanding and reading the scripture and applying what God says to my life. Today I can truly say that I enjoy God. I enjoy God more and more with each passing day. I love the shorter Westminster Catechism, 
the first question is, what is the chief end of man? Well, that chief end of man is to uh, glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that should be the outcome of our faith today. Ultimately, in all the confusion and in all the things that are competing for our attention and trying to put our focus where it's not supposed to be, the word of God brings us back. Now, we're going to look at 2 Timothy in just a moment, but before we do, I want to just kind of set the stage and just um, explain what's going on in while Timothy's writing this letter. First of all, we know that, I think we know, that 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus are what we call the pastoral epistles. They bring, they are the basis for the structure of church government maybe more commonly known as biblical eldership. And maybe I can interject this thought that maybe many churches today are suffering or are becoming fractured in their church government because they're trying to operate their churches outside the paradigm of biblical eldership in our churches. Today, if we're going to reinforce the church today, if we're going to reinforce what the church really means, we are going to have to come back to the origins of the Bible and we're going to have to begin to operate the church through biblical eldership. Secondly here, Paul is in prison. This is his second imprisonment. His first imprisonment, as you know, was under house arrest. So Paul was able to kind of interact with people and in ministry. But now things have taken a turn for the worse because now this is five or six years later approximately Now Nero becomes the emperor of Rome, and Rome is under persecution because Nero would like to destroy every one of those Christians. Today I know that we live in a world where Christianity is not the favorite thing to talk about today. Talking about God and Jesus and salvation, uh, if you work in the secular uh, workplace, you know that it's a very difficult place to bring the good news of Christ to. Everyone thinks that they are okay, that we don't need God, or that they don't necessarily believe what God has to say. Paul is now in a hardcore prison, a cold cell, not in someone's home. And he suffers martyrdom in about AD 67. By the way, this is Paul's last written letter before he passes on. And so in this letter, we can sense that Paul is urging Timothy in such a way that he wants him to understand what his whole ministry is going to be about. Timothy is still young by nature and by age, and Paul has poured out his life in his ministry and into Timothy. And so it appears that Paul has good reason to sense that Timothy was in danger of potentially weakening in the light of the persecution that he was seeing going on around him. So Paul makes this last-ditch effort to call Timothy. And in this particular text, and I'm going to read the text in a moment, but in the first part of the text, Paul reminds Timothy about the faith that he grew up with, that he was trained with. I want to remind us today as parents, I see many children sitting here, hopefully you are taking your children to the Word of God daily, if you can, teaching them what God has to say instead of what the world has to say. Because parents, if you don't teach your children, the world will teach them. 
And these are the formative years when our children are growing up. And this is where their biblical worldview is going to be shaped here. This is where they're going to make decisions. My granddaughter, the other day my phone rang and was Rachel, and she said, Hannah has told me that she loves God more than me and that she gave her heart to the Lord. Sorry. (laughs) These are defining moments in children's lives. Children will never forget these days. And today as we raise our families in this uncertain world, there's not much stability that we have except the Word of God. It is the only thing that transcends everything that the world has to bring before us. If you look at your text there, if you have your Bibles, I don't know if you have the scriptures up. By the way, I feel like... I feel so much better. Second Timothy. Paul begins in chapter 3 listing the characteristics of what ungodly behavior would be in these last days, what people would be like. And then he says in verse 5, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. And then he goes on and continues to talk and down at verse 16, this is a very familiar portion of scripture to us. He says this, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. When we're studying scripture, when we understand what hermeneutics about the interpretation of scripture, it's always a good idea to take at least five to ten verses prior to the verse you're looking at, and maybe five to ten verses following it. So I want us to look at verse 10 for a moment in chapter 3. Paul continues, You, Timothy, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. If anyone knew about persecution, Paul knew about persecution. Today I know that we've heard people say that we're being persecuted. We're being pers- we're not being persecuted. We're being criticized, but we're not being persecuted. We have no clue what persecution is really all about today in our country. There may be people that are suffering physical abuse from time to time, but persecution in the Bible pales in comparison, or I should say the persecution we think we're going through pales in comparison to what Paul was talking about during his time. Look at here in verse 12, he says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, 
while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now listen here carefully what Paul says. But as for you, continue, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now look at chapter 4, verse 1. The first four verses, actually. Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now listen here. For the time is coming, and I will add in parentheses, I believe is already here. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. In another version it says doctrine. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Paul was relating here to the many Greek philosophers of his day who he was competing and debating scripture with. The Bible and the believer. I've added a question there. Is the Bible relevant today? Is the Bible still relevant? Do we take God at his word? Do we take it as a whole? There is so much in the Bible today. We have Christians who call themselves New Testament Christians or red label or red letter Christians. We dismiss the Old Testament and we take the grace of the new, forgetting about the mercy is what gives us the grace today. There are nearly 32,000 verses in the Bible. Nearly 24,000 of them are in the Old Testament. Well, what does that tell us? It means that God had three times more to say in the Old Testament than he did in the New. And all the promises of God are throughout the entire Bible today. And yet we dismiss portions of Scripture because of what, maybe because we don't understand it, we just lay it aside or we just don't pay attention to it. Yet many of the things that we don't understand come under the heading of indicatives and imperatives. And these are things that we must do that God has commanded us to do. We are without excuse today, as the Bible says in Romans chapter 1. We are without excuse. We cannot say that we cannot do what God has asked us to do or commanded us to do. He has given us the enabling grace today. He gives us the strength. He gives us the joy. He gives us the endurance. The perseverance is there. But yet we find ourselves in a weakened state sometimes because we try to circumvent what God has to say today. The only way that we are going to reap the blessings of hope in the Bible is if we obey what God has commanded us to do. So, is it still relevant? I believe that all of our arguments and our discussions essentially stem from how we will answer that question. I came to find that the Word of God is not only in our churches today, but it's also at the pulpit of our country. There are nearly 35 presidents that I found, could be more, that used scripture, not just at their inauguration, but they used scripture during the term of their presidency. And I want to read you a few of them. 
Our sixth president, Quincy Adams, said the first and almost the only book deserving of universal attention is the Bible. I speak as a man of the world, and I say to you, search the scriptures. Andrew Jackson, that book, sir, is the rock on which the republic rests. Abraham Lincoln, in regard for this great book, I have this to say. It is the best book God has given to man. All the good Savior gave to the world was communicated through this book. Ulysses S. Grant, our 18th president, holds fast to the Bible as the sheet anchor of your liberties. Write its precepts in your hearts and practice them in your lives. To the influence of this book are we indebted for all the progress made in true civilization, and to this we must look as our guide in the future. Benjamin Harrison, if you take out of your statutes, your constitution, your family life, all that is taken from the sacred book, what would there be left to bind society together? Woodrow Wilson, the Bible is one of the, one of the supreme sources of revelation of the meaning of life, the nature of God and spiritual nature and needs of men. It is the only guide of life which really leads the spirit in a way of peace and salvation. America was born a Christian nation. America was born to exemplify that devotion to the elements of righteousness which are derived from the revelations of Scripture. Harry Truman, the fundamental basis of this nation's laws was given to Moses on the Mount. The fundamental basis of our Bill of Rights comes from the teachings we get from Exodus and St. Andrew, from Isaiah and St. Paul. If we don't have a proper fundamental moral background, we will finally end up with a totalitarian government which does not believe in rights for anybody except the state. Wow. One more, Ronald Reagan. Inside the Bible's pages lie all the answers to all the problems man has ever known. It is my firm belief that the enduring values presented in its pages have a great meaning for each of us and for our nation. The Bible can touch our hearts, order our minds, and refresh our souls. Much is to be said from our presidents over time. So is the Bible applicable? Is it appropriate? Is it permissible? Is it politically correct? Or is it hate speech? I think we could probably answer yes to all of those questions. But the only way to bypass that confusion is to realize the vital, the vital importance of the relationship between the Bible and the believer. These two things are inseparable. And perhaps today, too many of us, and I have full, fallen victim of this, this is not a rebuke or a judging remark at all. But too many of us have seen the Bible as something apart from the Christian. We see the Bible as something that is only used in the pulpits of our churches. This is what sparked the Reformation. This is what caused Luther to go to the church in Wittenberg and nail these 95 complaints, I call them, not thesis, but complaints, 
against a church. He said, this is not going to happen. We need to put the word of God in the hands of people so that they can see for themselves who God is and what he expects from us. It was going way too far because now people were paying for their salvation. They were paying for the forgiveness of sins. And Luther saw this. And what sparked this reformation is something that is still resounding down through the centuries to today. We just marked the 500th year of this reformation. But it's the disconnect between the Bible and the believer is where the issues begin. This is what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve. Satan, relentlessly, I don't believe this was a one-time occasion where he just talked to Eve once and Eve made the decision to eat of the fruit. No, I believe this was an intoxication of sorts. It's like what the world is doing to us today. It's continuing to bombard us with things that turn us away from God, that weaken the truth about God and about sin. The world may hold you in its mold, but it's the the word of God that's going to break you out of that mold by the power of the Holy Spirit that indwells us today, that brings the word of God to life. It is going to be the one indicator, the one asset that you are going to have until we see Jesus himself that is going to make the difference in your life. Before becoming a Christian, I read the Bible many times, many times. I couldn't understand it. I could not understand it. I tried, but I couldn't understand it. It was only at the transaction point where I surrendered my life to God, that the Holy Spirit came into my life, that I began to be convicted and I understood the need for God in my life. And now the Word of God continues to do that speaking today. So again, is the Bible still relevant? Yes. Well, why? Well, because it reveals the truth about God and mankind. It conveys the truth to us that our need for God is not a result of the fall, but it's just a result of being human. I needed God before I gave my life to him. Adam and Eve needed God before they sinned. And we still need God. And I think so much of our time today in our witnessing to others, we miss this point. We don't emphasize that enough. We sort of make coming to God an alternative or something other than what it's really all about. That we still need God, but it's sin that has separated us. And that sin today still separates us from God. But yet the world will tell you that they're good. I work hard. I don't lie. I don't cheat. I don't steal. I go to church on Easter and Christmas. I'm good. I'm basically good. Well, the real root of the problem is no, you're not good until you repent of your sins because repentance is the precursor to salvation. And yet we have kind of put that little important step aside And we try to come to God on our own terms. I know I did many times. I tried to work out my own way to God. And that's what many will tell you today. There are many roads that lead to God. Don't tell me that there's only one road. You see, the road that is so narrow that the unbeliever does not believe becomes very broad when we become believers because now we know that there is only one road. But that road opens up to us because now we see God in his fullness, in his glory. 
We see salvation. We see redemption. We see hope. We see healing. We see the potential for miracles today. We see the potential for miracles, the miracles of salvation. I believe that every time a person is saved is a point of a miracle. It is a miracle. Because people can't be saved any other way. It's a supernatural thing. When we talk about the supernatural, we're talking about something that is above the natural. And the word of God takes the natural and makes it the supernatural. We're going to talk about that in just a moment about salvation. But it reveals the truth about us. Let's look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 3 for a moment. Romans chapter 3. Beginning at verse 9. I'll wait till you're all there. I still hear. I don't know why, but I love that sound. If you're all there, say amen. Amen. All right. You guys just drink decaf coffee? (laughs) Romans chapter 3, verse 9. Paul says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written. None is righteous, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes." All have turned aside, every single one of us. That's what sin has done. It caused man in the garden to turn away and run from God. And today the same sin that resides within us turns us away from God. What is Paul talking about here? Well, in the Bible there's a big theological term called depravity or total depravity. What is depravity? Well, Total depravity doesn't mean that we are as evil or as bad or as depraved as we could possibly be, but that depravity has affected everything within us. In other words, depravity has affected my will, my emotions, my disposition, my decision-making. Everything about me has been affected by depravity. And yet today we, we make light of the things that we used to make light of, and yet we've changed all of that now, and we see it as something quite different. So depravity is something that has affected my heart, because that's what's been changed in my salvation, in your salvation. And that's why it's important to remain in a relationship with God, listen to me, through the Bible. How would I know about Jesus Christ How would I have salvation had I not known about the word of God? Romans chapter 1 is very clear that we are all without excuse. We do have an indication that there is a supreme being. There is someone greater than us. 
But salvation comes through Jesus Christ, and the Word of God is what reveals to us the truth about Jesus. It's something that dictates our walk with God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him or foolishness to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. I think in the New American Standard it says they are spiritually appraised. We cannot, cannot understand anything. Like I said before I was saved, I could not understand anything about God. I was raised as a Catholic, a very weak Catholic at that. I went to church once a year, and I thought the priest was the man that only could, only one that could talk to God. <laughs> Pretty sad state of understanding, but that's what I believed. I believed the Pope in Rome was the man. <laughs> he was the head man, the head honcho in the church. And today I've come to find that all of that for the most part, is just man-made religion. It took me a long time to realize that, most of my life. I just want to turn to Ephesians. I don't know, if, James, if you have that scripture verse up there. Ephesians chapter 4. This Paul's talking about the new life. In verse 17, chapter 4, Ephesians, he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former way of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness." That's the one thing that we miss about God, is that God is holy, and because of sin, the two cannot come together. And it's only through the blood of Jesus that God looks at us. It's through the righteousness of Christ that God looks at us. And yet today we find all sorts of people saying, I know God, I know God. Well, how do you know God? Can you explain what that means to me? Can you explain God to me? Can you explain what it means that the blood of Jesus has washed away sin. What does that mean? Many of us today are not really able to give a comprehensive explanation of what it says in the Bible about salvation. There's so many things that come to mind, and yet salvation is very simple. It's as simple as the ABCs at times. But it's a testimony that's only going to be marked by Number one, your experience with God. And number two, by what it says in the Bible. We cannot predicate our testimonies upon the way we feel because our feelings will deceive us. We need to align what we say to others with the truth about God because if something's going to make a difference in someone's life, it may be in large part your testimony, but what's going to change somebody is the word of God. 
when they see that for themselves, because it wasn't until I saw it for myself. Do you know how many people said, you need Jesus before I came to Jesus? <laughs> Almost at every dinner, at every meal, you need Jesus. You pray. I'm not praying. You pray. I'm eating my food. I mean, I was, I'm very casual about what I'm saying. And yes, maybe I'm trying to be a little bit funny, but you know something? There's a serious side to all of this. Because you cannot come to God any other way. And I didn't understand all of this theology stuff. But when I came to God and I started to read the Word, this is what made me understand what God was all about. This is what made me understand what salvation is all about. This is what made me understand what loving others was all about. Because before I was saved, I was a pretty nasty guy, to say the least. I didn't like many people. As a matter of fact, I liked nobody but me. And I thought I was the greatest gift that God put on the earth. That's how far off I was. Very prideful, very arrogant, very jealous, very whatever, bitter. You know what I mean. Some of you have been through that season in your life that before you came to Christ, now I have almost forgotten about those things. And I don't see people the way I used to see people. I see every single one of you through the eyes of Christ. When Jesus hung on that cross, he looked down on you. 2,000 years ago and saw you and said, I love you and I am dying for you. I am giving my all for you. <laughs> How are we going to know that today? We're going to know it through the Bible. Those are the changes that are going to be made. When we're living in sin there's something that interferes with our understanding. There's a, a cloud hanging over our heads. There's a fog we walk through because we can't see. And whether you're a believer or not, sin still has the same effects. It still stops your understanding about God. It stops the will of God from being performed in your life. It stops the answers of prayer. It stops the hope coming until you deal with the sins that God is asking you to deal with. It's only then that you will begin to have a correct view of Scripture. And when we have a correct view of Scripture, only then will that lead us to a correct view of God. When we acknowledge our sins and surrender our life to God, then we can see clearly the Word of God. And the Word of God now becomes a filter through which we respond to in life. You may not understand or know the Bible all at once, even though you may have read it a few times, but the Holy Spirit has a way of bringing Scripture to your spirit, to your heart, and to your mind when the opportunities come. But if the Word of God is not in you, the Spirit cannot bring up anything but your feelings. And that can be a very dangerous place to be. We want to be reminded of what the Scripture says. So this point of transaction where the Holy Spirit comes in and begins to initiate the changes to make you more like Christ. In the Bible, this is known as regeneration. It's a doing over of things. Paul talks about this to Titus. He says that we are saved not by works done in righteousness, but we are saved through the washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit. And it comes through the Word of God and the Spirit of God. That's where spiritual growth takes place. This is where new things take place. 
This is where Paul speaks about in 2 Corinthians. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Everything about you becomes new. Why? Because the inner heart has changed. Your mind hasn't changed. Your appearance hasn't changed. The changes are not in the way I dress or the Bible I carry, the tie I wear, the job I have, the car I drive, the house I live in. None of that means anything to anyone. It's what's in the heart that comes out, that shows the outside. It's your whole countenance in life changes because you look at things differently. You talk differently. You react differently. You begin to, the things that you used to do, you don't do. The things that you don't want to do, you know what I mean. Your whole life changes. Is anybody there but me? Is this what God has done for us? Well, it takes us to the next slide here, that the word of God produces life in the believer. If you want to turn, please turn to First uh, Peter, chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1. This is a, a key verse, a watershed verse, if you will. Chapter 1, verse 23. I shall start from 22. Having purified your souls, Peter says, by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of the imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So the word of God becomes the means of regeneration. And we'll talk about something else in just a moment. But suffice it to say is that the will of God is the the cause of regeneration. The word of God is the means of generation. And the will of God is the cause of regeneration. It's what changes us. God wants to change us. When God says that he desires that all men be saved, he really means that. Will all men be saved? Unfortunately not. But for us who know Christ, we understand this verse, that God really pursued me. He pursued me through his word. He regenerated me. He changed me so that I am somebody different. I am not what I used to be. I don't think like the world thinks. I don't have the same interests. The things I used to watch, I do not watch. The things that are evil and lewd and lustful, those things I've turned away from. The things that are healthy and pure and praiseworthy, these are the things I want. That's what Paul talks about in Philippians. He says, think upon these things. When we have the Holy Spirit indwelling inside of us, we can take those things in and we can understand them, we can enjoy them. We could act differently. Everything about me has changed from my marriage to my children. Regeneration has caused me not only to love God more, but to love my wife more. To see marriage as not something as a sexual partnership, but as a picture of Christ in the church. To see the deep love that Christ has for the church. 
It has shown me a greater and a more appreciative love for my children and my grandchildren that I want to see generations to come of Christians in my family. It has taken me from the ordinary and the mundane and it has caused me to be grateful for the things that God has given me. Not just salvation, but everything in life. I enjoy life today. As miserable as things may come in life today, as the hardship come and the difficulties come, I can see beyond all of that because I know that God reigns. And I know that my only hope is in God. No matter how difficult the circumstances get, no matter how hopeless things look, God is on the throne. And apart from God, we can do nothing. But with God, we can do all things. We can accomplish so much today in our churches, in our families, in our government, in our workplace, in everywhere Today, the word of God proves that true. And this is what makes me think that way, the word of God. If I stayed away from the word of God, I would become stale and I would begin to be listening to the voices of the world. I'd be listening to the gurus on TV, talk show hosts, Hollywood actors, athletes, and you know how corrupt and wrong some of these people may be. And I'm not using that as the rule, but there are exceptions. And the exceptions are plentiful. And that's why I'm reminded now also of Romans chapter 12. You don't have to turn there, but it's a favorite verse of mine. Paul says in Romans 12, verse 2, he says, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds that you may be able to prove what is that good an acceptable and perfect will of God. The word there, transformed, the Greek word is metamorpho. It's where we get our English word metamorphosis. If you can think about the process of metamorphosis that turns a caterpillar into a butterfly. The caterpillar, when it comes to life, is a seemingly helpless, defenseless little insect crawling, very sluggish and very slow. But when that thing begins to wrap itself up in its cocoon, there's changes that begin to take place. And some of those changes, from what we understand from nature, are very painful. But in that cocoon is where the adjustments are made. And when that cocoon opens, there's something that emerges that is something that is completely new. (laughs) Something that was so even unnoticeable becomes very beautiful and free and colorful and strong and everyone can see this and that's what regeneration does to us it takes us from the ordinary sluggish slow uneventful meaningless purposeless life that we have hopeless life and it brings us into not only a right relationship with God but it makes us an instrument of God's grace And today we stand as trophies of God's grace. And this is not where really our light shines. It shines outside these doors to our friends, our families, and our co-workers. That's what metamorphosis, that's what regeneration does for us. It changes us from the inside out. Well, what is the objective in all of this when God changes us? Well, the objective is that we be conformed to the image of Christ. That's God's objective in regeneration. 
God's in the restorative process. God is making all things new, not just the earth and the heavens. He's making us new. He's preparing us and equipping us to be qualified for the place called heaven. But our destination is not the place. It's the person. It's God himself. I am looking forward not so much to see streets of gold. I mean, that's where the prosperity mind goes. But I have my focus on seeing Jesus. I want to rub shoulders with Jesus. (laughs) I want to give him a pound or a high five. I make light of that, but what I really want to do is I want to hug that man, that God, who came to earth to die for miserable me, to give me life, to change me. That's what I'm going to heaven for. I can't wait for the day. I'm not anxious to get there just yet. I've got some things I want to take care of yet. Don't know exactly how that will pan out, but you know what I mean. Our heart's desire is to see God. See, we have to have an eternal perspective, and the only way to get that eternal perspective is through the Word of God. I can't conjure up in my mind what's up in heaven. That's not for me to worry about. It says that no ear, eye, or heart. Imagine what God has in store for us. I've worked in some pretty fancy homes. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't equate to what God has in store for us. But I know that we need to stay in the Word of God. Psalm 1 is a beautiful psalm. I think it's a psalm that every Christian should come to know, at least the concepts in it. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff driven by the wind. I'll stop there. Chaff. You see, apart from the word of God, that's what we will be like, chaff. If you ever watched an old Western movie and you've seen the cowboy walking through town, looking in a desolate town, looking for somebody, and we see the wind blowing and these things of weeds just blowing away and just carried by the wind, That's what we become when we stay away from the Word of God. We need that stability so that we are not tossed back and forth by worldly philosophy and secularism and all sorts of things. And the remarks given today by entertainers and athletes, who are these people who are directing us today? Only God directs us. Only God gives us the truth. Not any man I'm not saying these people, some of them, don't have the right to voice their opinions. Yes, we do have the voice. We do have the privilege and the right to voice our opinions. But they're telling us how to live. Parents, the government is trying to take your children away from you and educate them. Do you know that? Homeschoolers are under, are under attack today. They're trying to tell you, ladies, mothers, that the the child that you've given birth to, that they're going to educate them. They're going to tell them what to do and how to live. No, my friends, God is the one. God is the one who has established the family. And you as parents own your children. And you have the awesome responsibility to raise them in the fear and admonition of God. And that's going to only come through the word of God. You need to have them understand the scriptures. 
You don't have to have them reading Leviticus, but you can have them understand what God expects from them as they grow up. You want them to take bite-sized pieces of the truth of God. You want these kids to grow up with self-esteem, with encouragement. You want them to be the bright lights of the world. You don't want them to be like what the, the education system is teaching our children today. And let me interject this, because the education system is not, that's not a blanket statement is what I'm trying to say. We thank God for the Christian teachers in our schools today. But there are very few of them, and they're being challenged. Kids today are being attacked just by going in September to have prayer at the pole in many schools. In colleges the other day, uh, I forgot what college it was, there was a college professor that came out um, that erased some chalk on the sidewalk. There was a church group that came there and wrote something on the walk. I forgot what it was that you can still have a child and be successful, is what the saying thing. You can still have a child. And they were speaking against abortion because a lot of the girls there were pregnant. They were having abortions because they felt that they couldn't be successful in life. So they were aborting their children. They weren't married, unfortunately, but still this group was coming in and trying to witness to these people and tell them that, yes, God does love you and you can still have a a successful and gracious and fulfilling life by having that child, not by aborting it. And this professor came out and erased it and said, you can't do that stuff on campus. That's hate speech. Friends, we have a voice in the world today. The church has a voice, and yet we've kind of fallen back from that. We've withdrawn from the authority that God has given us. Do you understand that if God is for us, who can possibly be against us? Who? Nobody. No man, no government, no church, no religion, nobody can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. God controls all things. And that brings me to my last point here. God's, will, God's word reveals God's will. God's word reveals God's will. And he reveals it in three distinct ways. His sovereign will, his moral will, and his individual will. I won't spend too much time on the first two at all because I know we're, time, I think time is uh, just about up. I don't know exactly what time you guys get out. Am I okay for the moment? Yes, no, maybe? Okay. God's sovereign will. This is not up on the slide, but maybe you want to jot this down. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that the secret things belong to the Lord, but the revealed things belong to us and our children so that we may obey him or follow his law, I think another version says. There are things in life that we are not going to know about because they belong to God. They're called secret for a reason. We're not going to find them out. We try to at times, but we can't because God has his own predetermined will, and he does things the way he sees fit. We often think that we can change God's mind, but that is rarely, I should say that is, well, it's rarely, it is often misunderstood. Let me put it that way. There's not much we can do 
to change the course of time. God has a plan for mankind, and it's going to come to pass, whether we like it or not. But we live in it. And anyway, God's sovereign will is God's secret plan that determines everything that happens in the universe. That fills in your two blanks there. It is God's secret plan that determines everything that happens in the universe. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision. Notice the word every decision is from the Lord. President Trump, I know we have our differences of opinions about him. He's a very abrasive you know, in his rhetoric, of course, but he's our president. God chose him. But I keep falling back to when he was campaigning before he became president in 2016. He was always echoing this statement. The election is rigged. It's rigged. It's rigged. It's rigged. Well, yes, he was absolutely correct, but he wasn't understanding what he was saying. It is God who chooses. It's God that chose him. And I believe that God has chosen him as a token of extended grace and mercy in our nation that we might come to find God through him. I thank God for his VP, Mr. Mike Pence, who's a born-again believer, who is standing behind him, who I know is praying, and many in Congress are Christians, many in the Senate, the House of Representatives. I know that there's something happening in our country today. He came into the presidency against all odds. Why? because God was in the midst of that. That was part of God's predetermined plan that President Trump would be our president today. And I have never, honestly, I have never prayed for a president more than I've prayed for him. My wife and I pray for him every single day. He's a man who needs a covering of protection around him. He is a marked man, but I know God has his hand on him. And we as the church are commanded to pray for those that have authority over us. He's the commander-in-chief right now, and we need to pray over him. Proverbs 21.1 says, the king's, heart is in the, stream of, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Ephesians 1.11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of his will. Now again, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but because God's sovereign will is secret, it does not directly affect our decision-making. It may be part of the decision-making that we won't know about, but we will not really know that at all. So again, it doesn't directly affect our decision-making. Secondly, God's moral will. Well, what is God's moral will? God's moral will is God's revealed commands in the Bible that teach men and women how they ought to believe and live how they ought to believe and live. I'm turning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, 
Whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives us the Holy Spirit. And 2 Corinthians also talks about the same issue today in our world. This is God's moral will. When we talk about God, a person's individual will, well, if we want to be in the center of God's will, we have to make our individual will be at the center of God's moral will. That's being at the center of God's will. The question always comes, what is God's will for my life? Who should I marry? Who should I date? What school should I apply for? What car should I get? It just goes on and on and on. And these, A lot of these questions are not in the Bible. But if we take the Bible as a whole, we pray and we ask God for the wisdom and the understanding we will get the answer. God doesn't turn us down simply because we can't find something so specific in the Bible. There is an answer to all of life in this book. Every single issue you come up to in life is found in this book. So rather than asking what's best for me or what's going on that can really make me happy, we should ask God, what is your will in this decision? Thirdly, the individual will. The one blank there is that it's God's ideal, detailed life plan uniquely designed for each person. As I close, there's just a couple of things I want to mention here when it comes to our individual decision-making. We must seek out God and his will through the word of God in prayer and be careful not to base our decisions on any feelings or inner impressions that we may have. I don't know about you, but I can speak for myself that many times in life I have made decisions based on how I felt, thinking that it was what God really wanted and found that I was dead wrong. We live in a world that wants everything quick. We don't want to wait for anything. We can't wait to get out of work, get out of church, get out of school. We can't wait to do things. We throw our food into microwaves. We push everybody out the door. We half clean things. We half dress ourselves. We are just so quick with everything. And that's what the world is trying to do, put you into that mold where you make decisions too quick. There's nothing quick about God. God doesn't have a clock. God is timeless. He created time for us so that we have structure in life. But God is a timeless God. And what God has to do sometimes doesn't always align with how fast we want it. As a matter of fact, most of the time, it's not in our own timing. God does things in his own timing. He has a bigger picture in mind. We cannot see that far into the future. I was looking at a, the pictures in my room this morning in my, in my study, looking at my grandchildren, just looking at them on the wall. Some of the pictures of my grandchildren, I have four of them, not only Elijah and Hannah, but I have two other ones from my other son, with my other son and daughter-in-law. And I could only see them in that moment, and I can see the background, and I, can, I could remember, or I could recall where that picture was taken, the time of day and everything, and that's as far as I can see them. You see, God sees that picture fully matured. 
he sees my grandchildren 30 or 40 years from now, or however long they're going to live. He sees everything. We have a very limited view of our futures. Only God can give us the eternal perspective we need to live in the present and to hope for the future. Because if we try to worry about tomorrow, we're going to become very anxious and very frustrated in life. I can't worry about work tomorrow. It'll be there. If God should allow my eyes to open tomorrow morning, I'm going to get in my car and I'm going to go to work. But I can't worry about the challenges that are going to happen tomorrow. I need to live in the present, but yet have an eternal perspective on God, that God is going to take care of that if he should have me live tomorrow. In John chapter 16, if anyone here was looking in the Bible for God's will, it would have been his own disciples. But Jesus said this to them. He says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can bear now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will only speak what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That's why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. I want to say this as my last remark. When it comes to the Bible... and the church and Christians, we think a little differently on certain topics. I don't ever want you to ever, at least, it's my prayer for all of us, including myself, that we never dismiss the reality of God's Holy Spirit in your life. I know that we have different denominations I'm from the Assemblies of God. Quite a different doctrine than the Baptists. But you know something? I've studied both ends. I've seen the Reform side. I've seen the Calvinism. I've seen the Arminianism. And you know something? I've come to this conclusion that I can't find the concrete answers that I'm looking for. But I know the centrality of my doctrine. The doctrine of salvation remains the same that it is Christ who saved us, but yet it is by his Holy Spirit that he enables us to accomplish his will. It is by the Spirit of God that is going to move this nation to its knees. It is by the Spirit of God that we are going to receive not the knowledge we need, but the wisdom we need. We have enough knowledge We have enough people who have PhDs, and I'm not making light of PhDs. I I would love to have a PhD. I love to study, but I don't have that time frame in life any longer to do that. I still study, believe it or not, online. I take courses because I want to be an avid student of God's word. But knowledge is not what we need. It's wisdom that we need. Why? Because wisdom is whereby we apply knowledge this knowledge. Without the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, this book is nothing but a book, and it remains on the shelf to collect dust, and it will not mean anything to you or me. The Holy Spirit is what has brought life inside of you. Do not dismiss 
what is indwelling inside of you or in filling you. What moves you every day to come to every Sunday to come to church is not so much your own desire to come to church, but it is the Holy Spirit in you reminding you that this is what you need to do. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves. Come together under fellowship. Come together to express your faith because that's what God is trying to do. Conform us into the image of Christ. And what does that mean? It means to bring the church together because sin has scattered us. The blood of Jesus has brought us together through the Holy Spirit. I say that with all love and with all the passion I can say it with. Please never dismiss that. One of the things that have become known to me outside of Scripture, I should say one of my favorite sayings is this. It's a Latin term. Maybe maybe you've heard of it. It's Coram Deo. The implication behind it is that we live all of life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, and all for the glory of God. (laughs) What else is there in life? God wants you to lead a great, profound life But you know something, for the most part, it's a simple life. Many of us think that we have to do something grand for God. God doesn't need anything grand done for him. The grand effects have already been done at the cross. All he asks from us is to obey him. Amen? Amen. Um, I was asked to do the offering. I don't know who. Ushers, if you would please come and then I will, um, I will close us in prayer.